welcome back to the Faith and Politics podcast. Uh, I am here with Emily Leslie. Emily, tell us about yourself. Uh, give us a rundown of Emily Leslie. Hi, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. I, uh, well, my name is Emily. I have lived in Georgia for eight years, South Gwinnett for seven, and recently moved to the Atlanta area. I have a background in behavioral health and developmental disabilities human rights, and I am pursuing my master's in international law and human rights law. And I have, I'm somewhat of a familiar face around um, local politics. I um, am definitely somebody who is interested in uh, making sure that we're electing people who uh, take their values with them and are not able to be uh, you don't waver. Um, values don't waver. That's what I believe. So I have, um, what keeps me, um, right now I work in politics. I work in, um, as, uh, as I'm needed on several different campaigns, but I'm pretty picky because I do believe that, um, there should be a standard and we need to elect people who are holding, uh, who will keep, who will keep their values as they, transition into the office they are elected for and that's important to me so maybe a little bit of a mouthful maybe TMI but that's who I am and oh and I'm a mother of two children and I'm a uh, you know I'm very happy to be here I know Thomas um, to be a wonderful person who was my committee chair when I ran for office and he's just been a great support to me so thank you for having me Thomas let me uh, clarify that yes I was her committee chair Immediately after I became her committee chair, I wound up in the hospital. So I didn't do much work for her campaign. So I awesome. thank her for, uh, for uh, uh, saying that. But honestly, uh, Emily is a dynamic force in Atlanta politics and Georgia politics, uh, a stalwart defender of social justice here in our state. And I can't think of any better compliment to give anyone than to say that. Uh, so give you guys a background on what's happening. We had planned to film another podcast tonight on uh, specifically on the Kendrick Johnson uh, case from Valdosta and the wider implications that case has. Unfortunately, two people had to back out at the last minute, uh, one for health issues and one for a family emergency. And uh, of course, we're thinking about them and hope all is well with them. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to uh, pivot onto another topic because Emily is uniquely qualified to talk about this topic, and that is running in the conservative South when you don't fit the norm of what a conservative Southern politician is, quote, supposed to be, end quote. And so, Emily, can you give us a little background on uh, the race you ran, how that happened, and moving forward? So um, in 20, so 2017, 2018, um, 2018, I, I was, uh, it was brought to my attention by several, this was in 2018, uh, and I lived in Gwinnett County, and I have lived there up until very, very recently, and I uh, was approached by several um, women who are now good friends of mine and elected officials to, and they asked me, um, they told me, you know, no one is running for office. You're uh, in your district. 
is an unchallenged sea. And at the time I worked for Amnesty International and I also worked for Move On. Um, and I knew that this was an issue across the country that people were not stepping up to run and contest these races. And we were basically just handing, handing over power without a fight at all, especially at the local level. Um, and so I remember I was helping uh, one of my neighboring uh, districts, their representative now, Dr. Jasmine Clark at a meet and greet. And this is where this conversation happened. And we're like, okay, well, what can be done? The person who was supposed to run that the uh, Democratic Party picked um, during qualifying, which is the week in which you go submit your paperwork and you're put on the ballot officially to run, um, she didn't show up. Now in Georgia, in 2017, they had changed the law so that you could not get on the ballot. Ballot access was a no. The only way that you could be considered to, your votes could count for you is if you were a certified write-in or you got these mass signatures from the, the um, independent party. And that's, I mean, and Thomas can tell you, that's non-existent here, yeah. really. You don't, it's just not gonna Impossible happen. Impossible to win as an independent. Impossible. And so my only option was to run. And at this point, I had no idea what um, the data in my district looked like. I had no clue if it was blue, but I just didn't know. All I knew was that I had a, an obligation to, to step up. I had the qualifications, I had the time, I had the organizational skills, and I knew that my district had not been in play for 10 years. So regardless of whether it was red, blue, uh, you know, purple, it didn't matter to me. We always have to challenge the incumbent Republican. And right. so, yeah, and that's, that's what it led me to. And so after all this going through, you know, calling people, trying to figure out what to do, that was my option, be a certified writing candidate. I also worked for, I worked for Amnesty International at the time and, and you cannot accept, um, you cannot accept any type of money from a political organization, from any type of, any political party, because that compromises you as a lobbyist. So um, I had to make a decision and I was working on an International Violence Against Women Act at that time. I had one meeting left on July 5th. Uh, with Woodall, and um, I'm sure we all know how that went. Um, and I, same day, went and registered as a certified write-in. And I thought this is an opportunity to, no, I'm not going to win, but I do know I can organize my district. I do know I can show people that we can step up. We do have options. And I felt I had an, op an obligation to do it. Now, Amnesty was my dream job, and I remember um, calling my supervisor, and I said, explain the situation. I'm like, I'm not going to win. It's a writing campaign. I said, I don't know, um, and my thoughts always been, where can I do the most good? And she said to me, Emily, you can always come back, but we need you there. And that was it. So I did that. I broke records, and you know, I organized my district successfully. I made sure that, um, you know, the incumbent, uh, who obviously did win, but he wasted a ton of money 
and I, uh, you know, went on to break the state record for writing campaigns and in several other states, I'm told. So, and that in turn made other people feel like, hey, I can do this too. And that was really the point of it. And then I stayed in and um, long after I was kind of ready to exit that space, but I stayed in just because people felt like, you know, you've been here, you, you know, you can do it. And I uh, ran in 2020 and I did lose to my primary opponent. Um, and that's a whole other story, but yeah, that, that's, that's my story. That's why I ran and I, um, you know, no regrets at all. No regrets at all. But um, people like Thomas were there to uh, support me and tell me like, you know, you do need to run. So it was, um, it was a great experience. Something that I really find uh, impactful, what you just said was the term, I felt like I had to step up. What was your motivation? Why did you feel like you had to step up? What did you see that needed to be changed? I saw that there was a need in my district, a need for leadership. And we were a blue district, by the way. Right. We were blue. And I didn't know it. No one knew it. And because wow, no one, paid I wouldn't do it. Wow. Yeah, no one paid attention. Whoever had run that race, had they let, had they had the person who was supposed to qualify be on the ballot, they would have won. Whoever wow. was on that ballot would have won. So um, it was a blue district, and I worked with 220 volunteers. I just, it was what made me. When there's a need in your community for representation. When you see, when you're looking down at someone's voting record, like someone like Brett Harrell, and you're seeing, um, when you're seeing that they don't represent your neighbors and you, you have, uh, you see a need in your community, and if you can, you address it. It's identifying the problem and then identifying, you know, how, what, what is making this problem? Is it complacency? Is it people just didn't know? They didn't know it was a sleeping right. district. And then what you do is you bring about a solution. And my solution was to empower people to make sure they knew. And by the end of it, um, I had, um, you know, paired up with someone from the coordinated campaign and made sure that all the local literature went out with Stacy's, which was against the rules. Sorry. Right. Um, but me and Teresa Denquay, um, she ended up, she was, over my district and Shelly Hutchinson's, Ben Koo, um, Everton Blair, Jasmine Clarks, and myself. And we worked from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. every single night out of my house, 220 volunteers, phone banking, knocking doors. And we flipped every single seat in 2018 and broke the record for mine. And so I wanted to show that people can do it. We do have the power to change our outcomes. And I wanted to cultivate leadership behind me. I wanted people to come behind me and say, you know, I'm going to run for this. I can do it. You know, it wasn't about me. It was about making sure that my district knew that it was blue, knew it could be represented and making sure that since I knew this information and I was qualified, I had no choice but to do it. That was the right thing. And that's just it. Right. Right. So I, I think it's uh, especially important to point out that not only did you run the campaign out of your house from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day, 
not only did you have 220 volunteers coming to any of your house every day, but they actually, if I remember right, broke the threshold to your door as you yes. were coming in the amount of traffic. The marble thresholds, yes, were both actually like broken. Um, right. Yeah, and that was awesome. I was like, wow. I mean, it's a lot of people. I mean, we had, it was great. It was a beautiful thing. And then a lot of volunteers of mine went on to run for office themselves and um, have stayed really active. And that was, um, it was beautiful. It was a great thing. It was a great thing. There, it's funny that you say that. Uh, you mentioned your race in 2020 and that you lost in the primary, but that didn't stop you. You kept fighting uh, even after that. And that's what I find admirable. You haven't stopped. And if you don't mind, I'm going to share a picture. It's actually on your uh, Facebook page, if that's okay. Sure. Um, with you. Okay. I'm going to share this picture because it's a powerful picture. And if I remember right, this was from the summer of uh, 2020, right? And of course, we all know the individual in the middle, uh, a mark in the Atlanta community, a strength in the Atlanta community that we recently lost. But this picture with you and just the dynamic of uh, the two of you by each other, it really shows the difference in people and bringing together and what progressive politics in this area has brought together. The, just the three of you here and all in solidarity with your fist raised. That's a powerful image. Tell us, tell us about this, what we were doing here. I would here. love to. Um, I didn't mean to turn it emotional. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. Um, it's beautiful. I love it. Um, this was, um, thank you for sharing this, Thomas. Like, Of course. And for um, your record, everybody, this was not how the podcast was supposed to go tonight. We were not supposed to talk about this. So this is completely off the cuff. Emily did not know I was going to do this. No. And so this day, um, Haroon and I, um, and her and I are actually starting on the Muslim caucus. Actually, we'd started that right before COVID, but this was actually um, in 20, was this 2020? I might have shared in 2020. Anyway, I don't know. It was- I think this was 2020. 2020. Um, I feel like it was, um, yeah, there was a block party happening. I was hanging out with Haroon. Um, and I went down to the South side and we were looking at all of the uh, gentrification that would have been going on in the neighborhoods and like the police presence. And it was astounding. And, and we just, I chilled with them like the, like the whole day. We um, just walked around and there was a block party happening. And I remember, um, the police, I actually wrote on a piece of paper press and um, pretended like I was from the press so that the police officers would talk to me. And I oh, asked wow. them, yeah, I asked them, I went up to them and I asked them, what are you doing? Why are you blocking traffic from this direction and not letting anyone park? You're forcing people to park illegally. And this block party happens every year. Um, and this is Richard Pellegrino there who also, you know, um, him and Haroon were extraordinarily close. Um, and uh, yeah, this, um, but anyway, so I told him I was depressed and um, he told me basically that, um, yeah, they just weren't gonna let people park there because they were wanting them to leave. And that I said, so what if they 
what if they own the houses? They still can't park. There's like, no, you know, but it was this very, I mean, it was very obvious what they were doing. Um, that they they were trying to force people into, uh, into situations where they would have to park illegally, where they couldn't stay, where they would have, and it was illegal what they were doing. They had blocked off a street for no reason where people lived. And then they were only allowing, um, and they were just standing outside this perfectly peaceful, um, like gathering. I mean, it's like, and this is, I mean, this is culture. This has been going on for like years and years in this neighborhood. And I used to hang out in this neighborhood. So I know, I mean, I don't have a perfect past either, but like Harun and he showed me and I remember, um, and I'll get to the end of the story, but, um, I remember I went over to the police officer and I said, you know, there, and I remember it was later at night. And so we were watching this police officer. He had all of his lights going for no reason. Um, just, just there, there were kids walking to the store. It was summer. Um, there was no reason for these kids to be watching inside the houses. You can see the lights the red and white lights in the window. Like, how can you sleep like that? I mean, this is just, right. kids. and I watched this little girl and her mom walk to the corner store, but they got to go around this, this police officer with his lights going for no reason. So I went up to him and I said, can you tell me the purpose of this? Like, why are you doing, why are you doing this? You know, if I said in my neighborhood, we have police officers, but they're there for us. I said, why is it he's like yeah you pay for them though i said well who pays for these officers he's like city of atlanta i said so the city is sending you here specifically to do this and he said yes that's why we're here we're here to basically harass and so i went over there and i just start my mess and haroon he's over you know just watching me like oh crazy emily he's videotaping you know and I call my uncle, who's like a civil rights attorney in Florida. And I'm like, hey, can you just give me some real quick? It was a whole thing, but um, wow. it was like, it was that day was life-changing for me. That was, um, and I was always down there, but it was like the fact that, and then after that, it was like, Hearn was joking around saying, oh, after you, after you walked up to him, then they're like taking their jackets off so that like the kids can cross the mud, mud puddles, you know, the police officers right. were like that whole attitude change. But um, yeah, that was um, her and I like um, definitely we uh, I think that and that's where we came up with the idea of uh, we wanted to get more involved in voter registration down there. We wanted to I told me she'd run for office like we always had um right he's always such a uh he was such a force unfortunately it wasn't but a few months later that uh he passed away and uh you actually are the reason that i started following haroon and his work i uh saw you you commented on something either somebody was uh calling him out about something i don't know but you you defended him somehow and I saw you defend him on Facebook. And so that's how I followed him. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but that's I how I got it. Yeah. I do remember though, because you said, well, if Emily's saying that he's yeah. you know, 
my God is back to or something. I do yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly how it went. I said something like, if Emily's got your back, I got your back. I don't know you, but I, I got yeah. you. And then, but the more and more I found out about him, the more and more that I saw what the street groomers were doing. I mean, literally transformative work and the power behind that and the care in his heart, but not just the care in his heart to describe the picture to the people that obviously were not able to see the picture. Haroon is probably what he was probably what six, eight, six, nine, something like that. He was a very, very tall, about probably 400 pound black man. Uh, Emily Leslie, maybe a hundred pounds, uh, five, two, five, three, something five, like that. Five, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, five, five, maybe a hundred pounds. The two of them standing by each other uh, on the side of the road with their fists raised in solidarity. And just to see two physically very different people standing together, bound together by common beliefs, one, your progressive politics, two, uh, your faith, your Islamic faith, and so let's move in to talk about that. Progressive politics in the South, especially in Georgia in the Bible Belt, I'm sure you called it, especially in Gwinnett, because just north of Gwinnett is red country, like as red as you can get Marjorie Taylor Greens to the Northwest. I mean, you you were in dangerous area for a progressive in, uh, in the United States. So tell us what it was, to, what it was like to run in that area. Running in that area where I live is a very diverse district. It's um, South Gwinnett. So running there was great. Uh, well, you know, actually there are some um, problematic areas like we have Snellville, which is openly um, problematic and racist. They would say things about, uh, there are several like, you know, and, and you can find the, the mayor pro tem and our now incumbent um, representative who refuses to 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 levy any type of power that she has in her office to call for any type of non-discrimination ordinance, nothing like that, um, which is unfortunate because we do have such a problem with our local city councils. Um, that was definitely um, weaponized against me for sure. Um, when it was, I actually didn't have a primary opponent until I disclosed that I was a Muslim. So I don't know if they go together, but I'm, I'm one to just, you know, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't, I, I, if that's for someone else to answer, not me. I saw, I, you know, that is what it is, but, um, yeah, it was, it was difficult at times. I think that, um, oh, I certainly have been, things would be said uh, that were off color as far as, um, off color is probably the wrong word, but that were, that were like, oh, um, a lot of people from, in chat rooms from Snellville would be like, oh, a lot of people from, uh, you know, Algeria are joining this room. Can't imagine what they would want to know about our restaurants. It's like, well, maybe they have family here. Wow. They're just trying to like, you know, I mean, it was just ridiculous. Wow. Um, towel, uh, towel head terrace, um, you know, anything, anything like that has just been, that would certainly become weaponized. But then there's the other part where you're tokenized. So it's, um, you know, it's, 
it's 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 a situation where your voice is either exploited or silenced and sometimes there's that happy in between like you know this but um and it's gotten better but uh yeah for sure definitely um anti-muslim rhetoric anti-xenophobic rhetoric um you know and don't put it past there's nobody you can put it past that will not use that against you if they are that desperate for to get what they want um right. you know democrats included they will you know they'll weaponize it against you but mostly yeah there's a lot of um hate mongering that goes on and and i want to draw special attention to this novel city council because um the they're very it, it's extraordinarily toxic um and o- openly so so um yeah that's it's definitely something that i encountered um but not so much because i live in i live in a great district you know it was it was blue it was um 57% 56% blue um diverse i loved it uh you know so but and the people i was hanging around with as opposed to my primary opponent people i was hanging around with they don't talk like that they don't act like right. that you know we're you know, we're neighbors. So, um, and we, we not only accept, it's not just, we embrace each other for our differences. We welcome each other and we're there for each other. So I think it just, um, depends who you're, you know, and I just, I can't align with people like that, um, in a purposeful way, but yeah, it's certainly, um, and harassment. I don't know if you you want me to get into that, but as a Muslim please do, woman, please do. Yeah, this is. Uh, uh, yeah, I experienced um, unreal harass. I mean, just absolutely um, harassment that I would have literally um, staff members that would have to be uh, online, like. Uh, on my page they wouldn't even let me see it i knew it would be bad the harassing comments would be bad and this is sexual this is you know whatever they want to do um and strangers but i would know it was bad if i would get a notification because they were so diligent about protecting me from from any type of inappropriate discussion or um lewd behavior, pictures, harassment, being called names. Uh, and they would stay up till 5 a.m. Right. Just blocking people, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, there was a brief period in which I helped with your social media. It was brief. Again, I wound up in the hospital and everything. Uh, and I remember that you would get crazy, crazy comments. And I remember one time sending you a message and you messaged me back, hey, send it to this person. I can't even see it right now because they have it so guarded for me. <laughs> like you were talking about your volunteers were watching after you so much. That was, that was amazing to see yeah. that. And it didn't matter how many times they blocked these people, they would come back. And oh, yeah. as far as we know, it could have been the same two or three people doing it over and over again. But I think it, you, you touched on something just a moment ago that even Democrats, uh, the hate, even from the Democrats. And I remember we had a, uh, we have a candidate, and I won't say his name. Um, actually, I don't think Elle would mind me saying his name. Uh, he had a, he has a Muslim-sounding first name. Uh, 
people don't know the history behind it. And, but because of that, there were Democrats that tried to talk him out of running for office uh, for state house that see that he was running. Did you have that same thing happen to you? Did people try to talk you out of it or was it just the pressure uh, from the primary candidate? What happened there? About- um, Once they found out you were Muslim, yeah. Oh no, the only person who, um, no, I mean, because I, I'm very, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty chill. I'm very, you know, it might be the fourth thing you find out about me, you know, but I'm very open about it. I'm very vocal about it, but, um, no, people would tell me to talk about it. And I felt uncomfortable at times because there are brown and black Muslims and they, um, and I ha- I would get a lot of attention over this. And in activism, um, I stopped wearing hijab actually because of this, um, because you will get, it's almost, you get fetishized at some point as a woman. Wow. Um, some don't, some do. Um, everyone's experience is different. Um, and we all, but we all have to, and I can tell you this, every single Muslim woman has to deal with, um, the the patriarchy and that exists culturally in our in um you know society and and that's something that doesn't always exist but it does and you know it can depending on your um i won't go too much into boring you with the details but it does get to where i might be treated better than my muslim sister who is you know just is good for other reasons it's all very um you don't know what you're going to get you know and there is there are expectations of you among your community and then um and then there are expectations of what you should look like and act like outside of your community you know it's and it feels like it feels like you're either going to be, um, you know, if even even people, non-Muslims, they they seem to have a. I'm not saying non-Muslims, but you know, anyone, they have this idea of what someone should look like, who is a Muslim or who is Arab or who whatever, and you become more valuable to them the more you look the part, right? right? But that only goes a lot of times that goes as far as their campaign literature, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. The campaign literature, that's the only time you hear it. You don't see it. And I got tired of being put on campaign. It seemed, it seemed at first it started with activism. I would notice that I would get my, I'm pretty private, but I would get my picture taken a lot during activism. And that's what I was most known for with Georgia Alliance for Social Justice, which actually is where I found out that you and I had intersectionality I think you didn't realize that but figured that out but you know a lot of marches and things and I'd be in hijab and people it was very new for people to see people on the street wearing hijab um and I would get a lot and of course people take pictures you know whatever and to me it felt very much like not that I was being exploited but that my sisters who had the um who had brown and black skin who were Muslims 
who had been ignored, um, I was now taking away from a spotlight that I felt belonged to them because this is, yeah, we're all Muslims and yeah, they may feel differently, but for me, it was, it was that, you know, don't take a picture of me because of, you know, what I look like is unusual and you're, you know, um, it's a good photo op. Highlight the stories of my sisters and brothers who are living as Muslims and people who are, uh, you know, in disenfranchised communities who are black and brown. And I can take a hijab off was my point. I can take that off and no one, nothing's gonna change for me. I put that on, they don't care what color your skin is. You're gonna get Islamophobic stuff anyway. Sure. But, and I do both, but it's the fact that you can't, the fact that I could take off an article of clothing, no matter how strongly I felt about it, and I could take that off and have a completely different experience than my Muslim sister over here, and she takes it off and she happens to have a different color skin as I do, her life didn't change. She's now dealing with being a black woman in America, wow. you know? So wow. there's, I had privilege there and I felt like I needed to, and, um, and this is a struggle for me, but I feel like, you know, Allah knows best and knows what's in our heart. And, I know that for me, that was a sacrifice that I felt. Um, and now I feel more like I can dress how I want when I feel like it. If I want to wear a hijab, I wear a hijab. But um, I let go of my wearing every day because I felt like I wanted to, in some way, if amplifying somebody else means me just taking something away from me, then, sure. you know. And I'm glad you said that because that's where I want to turn next, especially because you and I were both involved uh, in some way or another with the Black Lives Matter movement in the past couple of years. Uh, both of us, you had a much different protesting experience than I did. Down uh, the south side of Atlanta, our protest did not get nearly as, uh, you guys clashed a lot with uh, not even just the police, but with different groups inside uh, with each other. Uh, you had issues. I think it is important that people know why I, at least as a white person, feel like I should be involved in that movement because it's my responsibility to tell other white people, hey, if you're not out here acknowledging that there's a problem and doing something, you're part of the problem because it's our silence that let the extremists that look like us get to where they were lynching people, get to where there were burned crosses and in uh, yards. And one of the constant things that I heard in the Black Lives Matter protest, and I'm going to share a picture right here. One of the constant things I heard, and this is our protest in McDonough, and uh, we're lined around the square here. And what you don't see off to the right is a line of police officers that are actually there uh, protecting us, believe it or not, because of the threats that we had, the number of threats uh, of violence to us, not the other way around. Um, business owners were worried about threats to their property, but the the only violence threats came from uh, white men that were threatening to shoot things at us. 
And, uh, yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. But one of the things I constantly heard was that if you're a Christian, how can you stand for Black Lives Matter? It's full of hate. It's full of hate. Let me say right now that if you think Black Lives Matter has anything to do with hate, then you've completely missed the picture. All lives matter is what you keep saying, but all lives can't matter until all lives really do matter. And the fact is that a black person in America, as Emily just said, has a much different experience than I as a white man am going to have. And that's just the reality of the situation. And it's my responsibility to tell other white people about that. But Emily, you were more involved, way more involved in the movement than I was. Tell us some of your perspective about that. What motivated you? What kept you constantly in that fight? Because it was a struggle. I saw some of your photos. It was a struggle. Uh, you were actually helping people that were wounded at one point. If I remember right. right. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of, uh, so the first day, um, I, I don't know if you know my um, good friend, Will, who's also a good friend of Haroon's, we're, um, we're peace marshals and we always have been um, for years and years. And he's, um, I tell him, I'm like, you know, he's, I, I remember he's always had a fascination with like Islam and things like this. And, um, you know, he's just, that's kind of a side note, but just like, that's my other half. You know, I would always go to, um, any type of protest as a peace marshal with him. Um, and so I get a call like the night before the first day and as well um and Gerald Griggs and he's saying hey you need peace marshals for Mars so Will and I are like oh yeah I'm like I'm down I'll meet you at your house um and we go and we didn't know what to expect so there were two peace marshals the first day where you saw CNN where you saw the car explode when you saw that there were two peace marshals I was one of them um and Will was the other and it was nothing happened that day the way that it was portrayed to have happened. Um, I was there from beginning until end. I was actually walking away when the car, the first, this police car exploded. Um, wow. But I was treating people. I have a, have a background in um, healthcare as well. Um, and I'm a mental health first aid responder. And I was actually trained, believe it or not, I was the only clinician in this class, but I was trained by the APD. I recommend oh. everybody go get their mental health first aid training because not only can you advocate, but you can actually be a, a barrier between police officers and anyone experiencing mental health or distress. Now I'm a here, especially I've, you know, I have a lot of credentials behind that, but this training is free and it's eight hours. And I never expected to use it for this, but um, the, the trauma that, I mean, it became very apparent the first day when I was treating people who were falling, running from tear gas behind a police car, because this is in the middle of COVID. Everyone had a mask on. If you wanted to not get COVID, go to a protest. Like right. that was it. And 
Yeah, um, that was probably the safest place. It was the safest place. I've never seen people look out for each other like that. And it was March after March, day after day, day in, day out. And the National Guard came. The, I have pictures and videos I should have shared with you, but um, um, where I was like right in front of them and it would be terrifying and you'd just be begging them and saying, listen, don't do this, don't do this, you know? And I, there's one incident that stands out in my mind, and this was a lot of what I did. Um, there was a member of the National Guard, and I come from a family of veterans, and there was a man in the National Guard. I had my credentials with me, and I, as far as my um, first responder, mental health, all that, um, and I had, ironically enough, I saw Brett Harrell there at the protests, my, uh, <laughs> the Republican incumbent I ran against. Right. And um, had a great conversation. He's actually, his partner is a black woman. So I was there and he, and this, uh, this uh, kid who was National in, Guard member. yeah, National Guard, I'm going to call him a kid because that's what he was, um, kept smirking and laughing because the gentleman next to me, black man who is in just angry justifiably like just furious and just saying how he felt and this kid kept smiling at him and I said where's your sergeant go get me your sergeant and they're like you know I need who is next in command and I went down line until I found him I was like is that you I was like come here and they're like yes ma'am I said listen to me you need to tell this kid to get the smirk off his face. And I said, oh, I was, I said, listen, I'm going ahead and letting you know that this gentleman is now under my care. I'm his advocate. I have my credentials. No one needs to talk to him, speak to him, look at him or do anything to provoke him while I am right here or otherwise. I have identified, observed him as someone having a crisis. And he said, I said, and I need you to stop having your, your soldiers provoke him. He right. went right yeah. over there and he told him to stop. He was like, I mean, cut it out. Don't do it. Like, and that's, this was all the time. Did this the kids stop doing it? Did he actually yeah, he did. He to antagonize? Oh yeah, yeah, he did. But, and, um, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of, and you don't really say a lot, you listen. Sure. My job was to listen and to make sure that I, when people were getting upset, I was standing there listening and ready to intervene and just say, Hey, sorry, I've identified this as someone having a mental health crisis and you, I will be their advocate. Please let me, you know, and the police knew me. They know that they know that once someone has stepped in and done, there's protection there, like there might be loopholes, whatever, but you you have to be you have to sometimes it's it's bearing witness that has a new meaning for me now because I remember I used to think bearing witness what is that bearing witness to me is like when you have to bear witness to people expressing pain anger anguish disenfranchisement all in just all those feelings that we can't imagine as privileged people and giving them the space to do that and being willing to mess anybody up and come between anybody who tries to stop that healing process. 
because that's just, that's our, that's my job. That's my job. And so, yeah. And there was a lot of just not words, but people just hanging on to me or like, you know, giving a bandaid, getting water, like just taking care of each other. It was, it was very much, it's not black against white. It's all of us against racism. Right. Wow. That's powerful. That was the resounding message. And what a lot of people didn't understand um, was, I I mean, I would stand in front of police cars, whatever. I did not care. I saw the police, um, um, the ABD, I saw them um, pepper spray used, um, oh, what is it called, Thomas? Um, the mustard gas, the OC spray, the... Yeah, the gas. I saw them yeah. use... Um, Tear gas on tear gas, a yes. quadriplegic. Well, I don't know why I said mustard gas. That was not mustard, mustard gas. Tear gas, gas, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, this is Vietnam. Woman. Um, there was a gentleman who was running out. He was a paraplegic. His wheelchair was running out of battery power. I happened to see him hiding off in the corner. He did not see the mayhem coming down the street by the CNN building and the gas flying. His battery was about dead. And the only reason I got out of there right before this car exploded that had nothing to do with the protesters who were there the majority of the day um, was because we had to push him to a Mars station to make sure he got home. And that's what we did. And they formed all these protesters, these horrible protesters formed, I was like, form a chain, form a chain, form a chain across the crosswalk to block him from not only anyone running, but from any type of harm vehicle anything that came his way and we got him across the street into marta and he made it home safely and this was a quadriplegic young man and i said you know um so glad that you're here today and he said how could i not be here this is a paraplegic white man who risked his life i mean the police weren't looking out for this man he was his battery was dead he was gonna be stranded there and if it weren't for the the whole environment, the dynamic there of people looking out for each other and us knowing that like we're in this together. Yeah, we, we're not the same. We are not gonna like, we're not the leaders of this, but we're here to support whatever effort, whatever needs to be done. It's our job to make sure that we use whatever leverage we have to, to keep people safe and to make sure that their voices are heard and they get validation because if they're not going to get it, they're not going to get validation. And we know that's part of healing and recovery is having someone take accountability, say, yes, you're right. Yes, you did. You know, but we're not going to get that. The next best thing is letting people express themselves and being the kind of like sir like white persons being like I hear you I got your back like you're absolutely right I mean and it was it was hard it was um I saw um when we were running away from the Capitol a 17 year old girl got hit in the back of the head with a rubber bullet we didn't know they were rubber bullets we hid actually behind a marble um and I'll quicken up I know I'm dragging on but yeah I told people don't run I'm like get behind things don't run and she had been shot in the back of the head. Keep in mind, this is state troopers. This is APD. This is National Guard. These are the un, you know, whatever. This is everybody. 
up at the state capitol and we're walking away to you know we're all dispersing peacefully and they start shooting we don't know that they're not bullets and i have a 17 year old young woman who is lifting up her um her hairpiece to show me where it hit and i said i need you to go her room is there i said we got to get her to the hospital make and he followed up with me made sure like we both made sure that she made a report documented it you know that we all were doing what we could and that was um you know and I struggled with my mental health during that time it was um it was uh and that's you know and I shouldn't even say that because I mean what happened was just um I had people we were tried to run over us um Tim Franzen, another person who's super bright, like there was a lot, but um, it was uh, it was the most unity I've ever seen in this country. That's powerful. That's a powerful story. And I actually saw a video. I did not realize you were in the video, but I actually saw the video. At one point, you guys had to lift up his wheelchair and it got stuck somewhere and you guys had to lift it up. Yeah, there's there a, was video actually a video. Yeah, there was actually a video of that. I can't remember where I saw it, but I remember you get, and I didn't know you were in the video, but I remember there were like eight of you and you had to lift up his wheelchair and carry it for a minute. And that was, uh, that was really, really strong. Again, I don't remember where I saw it. Actually, I want to say it. I saw it on uh, CNN's YouTube, but I don't know that for sure. I don't know that wow. for sure, but I had no idea you were in the video when I saw it. So I'm I want to saw that. I'm glad people saw that. Yeah. It was a really bad situation. And that it was either CNN or MSNBC's YouTube right after the protest. It was on there and it was just, it was a powerful moment. And it was in the background. No one was really commenting too much about it. But it was a, it's a powerful moment for us. To, and I like, especially what you said there at the end that uh, you and I both, we come from places of privilege uh, just because of the color of our skin. We come from a place of privilege. There's no, there's no way denying it and we shouldn't. And we're here to bear witness, not necessarily to lead the movement. And I think we have a lot of people that try to co-opt and lead the movement. I remember at the protest we had in McDonough, there were people, there were cameras flashing, the press was there. And I was thinking, what am I going to say? Because I did, when I started the protest, I didn't expect it to be a protest. I said I was going to go stand in front of the Confederate Memorial when just tons of people started showing up. And I remember that you had, and this was the one where there were concerns about security. And right. So like, I, yeah. yeah, I sent a message out saying, hey, it had been canceled to try to dampen the numbers because there were legitimate concerns that uh, people were going to try to hurt us. And uh, we still showed up anyway, but we were trying to mainly keep the people that uh, had made the threats away, thinking that the protest wasn't going to be there. So uh, we were there. It wasn't as large of a crowd as we were going to have, but we still had a pretty large crowd there. And I, I was thinking, I can't. I can't lead this. And so I had the megaphone and I started it and I said, welcome. I can't tell your story. Only you can. And so we started passing around the megaphone because it's not our place to, it's our place to bear witness. Our place, especially me as a white man, is to tell other white men like me who are perpetrating some of this, how they're a problem and how what they're doing is a problem and explain it. And that is where I often run into the most conflict, uh, everything from conflict with my family to having lost family over it, friends. Oh, wow. That's uh, hard. It, it's hard. It's hard 
to do that, but it's worth it because you, you realize that you're, you're standing up for something that you had remained silent about for so long. And for so many years, I did remain silent about it. I tried to justify some of the stuff I saw. In fact, I remember uh, right after uh, my wife and I got married, I was speaking to my sister-in-law uh, via text. And I can't remember, uh, it would have been 2011, 2012. And I was trying my best to justify to my sister-in-law why this black man had been shot, trying my best to justify it. And she was telling me, no, what you're saying does not make sense. And it probably took another year before I realized how much I, how wrong I was. And it was a slow transition to where I am now. And I still have a long way to go. Uh, we all do. We all have so much that we can still learn and we'll be learning with the rest of our lives. But one thing I'm going to turn it into uh, religion here at the end, because this is a faith and politics uh, podcast. And thank you, Emily, for bringing up the social justice element, because I think that's the most important and as I say that it's my responsibility to talk to other white men, it's also my responsibility to talk to other Christians. I'm a professed Christian, and I see the wrongs in the church. And again, it took me so long to realize the wrongs in the church and what we were doing, the uh, homophobia, the transphobia, the uh, just persecution. People talk about Christians being persecuted in the United States. I've never seen one Christian ever persecuted in the United States. I don't know where that narrative started, why it started. I do know where it started. I know why it started, rather. It started to make people feel justified about some of the hate that they do. When people stand against them, they claim it's persecution. But Jesus said the two greatest commandments, one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he called the greatest commandment. But we as Christians seem to look over that. We take the uh, therefore and go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. We really focus on that part, but we don't be focus on the next line, which is in teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Everything I have commanded you. Jesus never said anything about whether or not a gay person can get married. Jesus never said anything about uh, you have two identity, uh, two gender identities that you can stick to, and that's it. Jesus never said that a woman can't choose what happens to her body or that uh, everybody should have guns to use. Jesus never said any of that. So if you proclaim that you are following Jesus Christ, unless you are exhibiting and teaching love for one another, you aren't. So and that is something... Right. That is something we have so much trouble. So as we as we finish up here, Emily, I just want to turn it to you one final time. Tell us what you want the people listening to this podcast, the Faith and Politics podcast, you as a Muslim woman, as a progressive, as a intellectual, as a social activist, and as every other title that you could possibly have, you as a human, what do you want to leave us with? We've covered such a, I think I want, I think one thing I want to say is that a lot of, I feel that um, 
there's so much to be said, but I think as far as religion goes and as far as, um, and I think, uh, I think that for me, people often, I, I supported Bernie Sanders and this, and this is relevant. Um, I'm not saying every Muslim did, but if anyone had cared to ask Muslims why, the reason is, and this isn't about Bernie, but just so you get an idea of what Islam is to me, um, it's fairness. It is not fighting unless it is to defend yourself. It is never taking more than you need. It is treating others with dignity. It is uh, having um, the, it, it is, it's so misinterpreted that the beliefs that we have are misinterpreted. They're, um, we believe that everyone should be, well, I believe, and because of my faith, I believe that uh, everything that happens, I'm grateful for. Um, everything, every bit of injustice should be pursued. It should be, um, you know, until, until it is, uh, until, until there's closure, until it is, um, mitigated. You can't have, um, my religion teaches me fairness, kindness, speaking to people in a kind way. It teaches me how to have patience, how to love people, how to give blindly. Um, a lot of people, you know, they will give to a mega church all day, but the man on the street is a bum. And they will say, well, I don't want him paying. I don't want to pay for this, this, this for him. You know, uh, he's going to buy alcohol. For me, we have what's called zakat. It is mandatory we give charity. I don't care what somebody spends the money on because once it leaves my hand, it is for them. And if it betters their life, that's wonderful. But... It is not for me to judge. Somebody doesn't cease, and I'm going on a little bit of a rant here just because. No, this is perfect. This going. It, I believe that everyone is a human being and should be treated as such. I wouldn't hand you a dollar, Thomas, and say, Thomas, I'm going to need to know what you're spending that dollar on in case it doesn't, you know, line up with what I would need to, I need to see your you practice some responsibility with this 50 cents because, you know, God knows I didn't just buy some gob stoppers. Right. It's, it's the fact that I believe in giving blindly. I believe that no matter what, if I do the right thing, if I have patience, it gives me very little time to be angry. It gives me very little time to judge. It gives me very little time to sit there and and judge others and say well you're not doing this we're going to give kenneth copeland millions of dollars but this veteran on the street i'm not going to give anything because he might spend it on drugs wow things wow. like this my religion teaches me that if i have anything in my pocket you can i drive everyone crazy with this um i don't care what it is if i don't have change you're getting whatever i have like 
doesn't matter. I'm handing it to you. Why? Because tomorrow, uh, I mean, this is the right thing to do. The most generous among us are those who give when they have nothing. Wow. That That is is true true. generosity. That is true giving. And you don't expect anything in return. You can have a fundraise. You can do whatever you want. But helping somebody when you look, I was um, uh, on the street the other day, and I see people holding signs that say veteran this, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, how in the world, and I hand him like food because I had food. I didn't have any money in my car. I had no, uh, what's the word, cash. And I had just food, right? And I said, and I hated to do this because I'm like, oh, I don't want him to think I'm just giving him food because I don't trust him with money, you know? And I said, hey, I have food and I have a Target gift card. <laughs> like, this is what this I have. This is what and I have. Said, yeah. And he said, thank you, ma'am. And I was so ashamed that moment that he called me ma'am <laughs> because I felt like, why is this veteran man who is a man, why is he calling me ma'am? as though he owes me some type of respect that I don't owe him regardless of where he came from. And I know I'm off on a tangent right now, but this is like, I don't know. I feel like that's important. That's, we have to think about things. We have to think more about how we're going to end up, who we're going to need. uh, You know, you can't watch people cry out for help and justice and not help them. Justice is part of my religion. Right. Justice is the essence of my religion. Justice, fairness, calmness, speaking to each other nicely. Um, and, and it's always, you know, taken on this other narrative is always given to it. But um, I'm a progressive and I'm a Muslim because the progressive idea of everyone having treatment for health, for their medical issues, everybody having a living wage, everybody not being so focused on on, uh, what they have, but the legacy they leave behind. These are things that matter to me. These are things that I know and I'm reminded every day that none of this goes with us, but the things we do to others uh, that change their lives, that help people, that even just our kindness. Um, these are the stories that are going to be told uh, at our at our funerals. Alhamdulillah. So it's like right. we have to think about that. Is you know, walk in a way that you can look back on and people will be able to, and don't do it for that reason. But we have to think about what we're leaving behind. Nothing in this world matters. You can lose it in a second. Nothing matters. And it's who we look after and it's watching after each other and making sure that um, we aren't, that we understand what love is, what revolutionary love is, and that it's wanting to see the people around you live a life free of oppression and able to prosper just like you, that's love. And for me, that's being a Muslim. And 
I don't know if that answers any questions. Probably yeah, things that's, that, but that's perfect. That is absolutely perfect way to end this, Emily. So, guys, gals, and our non-binary pals out there, we are concluding this very special episode of Faith and Politics, a Taboo Table Talks podcast in which a Muslim and Christian sit down and have a very impromptu, improv conversation about progressive politics, Black Lives Matter, love and charity. None of these topics were planned ahead of time. Uh, Emily can testify that this was not the intention of this podcast tonight. Nope. And it may just be the best episode that we have ever recorded. My name is Thomas White. I believe that a woman has the right to choose what happens to her body, that Black Lives Matter, that common sense gun control can save lives, and that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior.